Welcome to the inaugural episode of Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. My name is Greg Mashansky, a longtime fan who just can't let this go, no matter how many times my friends and family say that I should. <laughs> anyway, I'm a, I would like to introduce my partner in crime here, who will be leading plenty of these herself, I hope, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, and um, I've been knee-deep in the fandom uh, since the beginning and got very involved in the conventions and still haven't let it go. So I, int- I introduced her as my partner in crime, but really for many years, she was kind of my boss. I worked on gatherings that she chaired. I chaired a gathering, but even when I chaired a gathering, she was always a president of the gathering of the Gargoyles and incorporated. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, that's not inaccurate, is it? No, I I mean like that's how, that's how it all ran. Mm-hmm. We were always there like if we weren't running it, we were at least helping whoever was. So I I honestly believe there were maybe only three that you weren't personally involved with. Yeah. Ninety seven, ninety eight, and two thousand five. Every other one you were involved with in some capacity. I did, some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I shared one in two thousand three. Swore I would never do it again. Then he brought me into two thousand six. Then we did two thousand eight and two thousand nine. They were they were a labor of love. There was a lot of uh, a lot of good people put a lot of time of their own time for free into it, um, and uh, I really really miss all everybody so like it's nice to be able to talk about ye olden days yeah and i remember ye olden days this show gargoyles we're about to pour our all of our love into it came out at a time when i think animation was changing batman the animated series came along it was a bit of a revelation it brought more action drama to the realm of television cartoons and fox and marvel had a hit with x-men the animated series and I don't know how big of a hit it was, but I thought that show that Universal did around the same time, Exo Squad, was pretty damn cool. I remember it. Uh, nobody you, else. You does. know, I'm a huge Exo Squad fan. I loved that show, but like, I've always been an, an animation nerd. Um, it's always been a thing for me. And uh, and when Gargoyles joined the Disney Afternoon, I was just ecstatic. It was great. It kind of reminded me more of like. American anime than a Disney afternoon type show. Um, and it, I was just lost in it. It was fantastic. It got me doing art again after years of never touching a pencil. Uh, it was just inspiring. Yeah, I know. I've got some of your art on my skin. <laughs> on your skin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, I love it. I, I love it very much. And this show was quite the revelation for me. It, it hit me at a relatively young age, and um, it taught me the simple power of something as simple as telling a story. I mean, I remember thinking the first season was excellent. It was around shortly into season two when it went from just excellent to, like I said, a revelation. As soon as we hit City of Stone, which hopefully we'll eventually get to and talk about in depth, I just had no idea an animated cartoon could do that. I found that it entertained my whole family. Like, uh, the... The twins were still really young at that time. Uh, I think they were like five. And they could watch it and I could watch it and everybody was entertained. And it had, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't like jokes going over the kids' heads. It was still something that, you know, all of us got. And it was, it was really uh, just a great show. 
So it was, and we're and listeners, we're looking forward to sharing it all with all of you, and we're hoping to bring on some old friends of ours and maybe make some new friends along the way. That sounds like a good plan. I like it. The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness, superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. strong enough to leave claw marks in solid stone. The detective trusts no one. That's one thing we have in common. Everything's going according to plan. Then their descendants shall pay. I will have blood for blood. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, webmaster and executive producer of the Spidey Radio Network. Thank you for listening to the show. This show is powered by Spidey-Dude.com. It's part of the general network that powers it. You can support this show if you like via patreon.com slash Network. You can also leave us a voicemail, 818-925-6631. We'll play that voicemail in a future episode. We also like to get emails every once in a while. Be sure to leave us an email if you like, gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Follow us on social media. At Network on Facebook is the general network Facebook page. But you can also follow this exclusive Twitter handle, at From Erie on Twitter. Follow us there to get show updates at both places. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe if you're listening to us on YouTube. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcasting app, you can always leave us a five-star review. And we will read all of that feedback in a future episode. want to give a shout-out before we get started also as... To our to our patrons, Scott and Venkman, thank you for your support of this show and all the shows on the Spidey Radio Network. As always, we thank all of our guests and our host for this show. And with that, I turn it over. Welcome to the premiere episode of Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. The sequel, or maybe the prequel, to the Spectacular Radio podcast. If you haven't listened to that podcast yet and you like Spectacular Spider-Man, go give that a listen as well. I would like to introduce Jennifer L. Anderson, a longtime fan of the TV series Gargoyles and a former president of the Gathering of the Gargoyles Incorporated, which we'll be talking about throughout the duration of this and other podcasts. Hi, how's it going? 
Great. How are you today? I'm pretty good. It's been a nice day. Excellent, excellent. It's been a pretty nice day here as well. And I would like to introduce the co-creator and supervising producer of the first two seasons of Gargoyles and the writer of the SLG Gargoyles comic book, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi. And I would also like to introduce one of the early development artists, as well as the lead character designer for season two. I hope I'm getting his credit correct, Mr. Greg Guler. That's right. Hi, everybody. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you both here. As I've mentioned earlier, we will be mentioning The Gathering. The purposes of this podcast are to do a deep dive into the Gargoyles animated series from 1994, a wonderful series, which I would hope if you're listening to this podcast, you have watched, and if not, why not? But anyway, we also would like to, our hope is to, over time, recreate the experience of The Gathering of the Gargoyles convention, at the very least in audio form. What that means? Well, stay tuned. But we are going to begin this very first initial show by discussing the development of Gargoyles, because that is almost an epic saga in and of itself as much as any episode of the TV show. From what, So from what you two remember, I understand it's been a very long time. Actually, we should start from the very beginning. Jen, I sent you a link earlier. I believe it's got a memo on it. <laughs> yes. Um... <laughs> This is from Ask Greg. Um, a real fossil. This is the earliest file I have on the series, dating back to 31191. It's short but very strange. Here it is, unedited. Gargoyles. They've been sleeping for a long time. It's been cramped, damp, and uncomfortable in those buildings. Now it's time to wake up and party. Only one problem. The evil Dr. Vo- Vomfu who turned them into stone in the first place, is still out there making trouble for our bat-winged friends. But hey, no biggie. They're gargoyles. Bomfu won't know what hit him. (laughs) (laughs) Do you two remember that? There's a lot lot to unpack there. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not familiar with any of that. Yeah, that was definitely before uh, Greg Guler uh, joined the team, I think. Um, <laughs> when did you start at Disney, Greg? Uh, in June of 91. All right, so around that time. But uh, So one thing to, to unpack is that VOMFU, V-O-M-F-U, uh, if you type that on a normal keyboard and then you move your hands uh, one key for each letter to uh, to the left, and try that now, and and you'll no get to a the right. Name. Move your hands. So. Yeah. V is to the right of C. Right. So if you type in, if you're on V and you move Got one it. to the left, you're yeah. C. So that <laughs> spells Cindy. Bumfu becomes Cindy, and Cindy Shupak, uh, who uh, at the time was one of our uh, uh, development associates uh, at Disney TV Animation. And um, I think that was probably one of her first jobs in Hollywood. She went on, uh, she's gone on to be a major uh, writer. She worked on Everybody Loves Raymond and a number of other uh, television series. 
I think she's been a showrunner in her own right. Um, but this is how long ago this was. We had just started using email for the first time. And we were sending emails where we moved our names over a key. Uh, and that became like our handle. Um, but none of the names were really all that great except Bomfu, which was a, such a great name that we decided uh, at least temporarily to use it in a TV show. Um, <laughs> so that is incredibly obscure. I'd forgotten about that. But as soon as you said Bomfu, I remembered it. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, early on, uh, the basic impetus for the entire idea um, came from two places, uh, and I've discussed this before elsewhere, um, probably ad nauseum, but... Um, I'm sure it'll be new one to of the someone. Main, right. One of the main impetuses of creating this show was Disney's Adventures of the Gummy Bears, which was a show that um, I adored. Uh, I take no credit for it uh, at all. Uh, it was created by Jim Magon in the very early days of uh, Disney TV animation. I think uh, the uh, I wasn't present for this. This was before I started at the company. Uh, I started in 89, and this was before that. But um, the, the mythology is, is that uh, Michael Eisner, uh, when they were starting up the division, said... Uh, my kids like gummy bears. Make a cartoon about gummy bears. And so Jim came up with this wonderful mythological setting and this great backstory for the gummy bears. And it was, I thought, a really terrific show. I came in very late and was, as a development executive, um, worked just a little bit on the last season or two of the show. Um, when Mark Seidenberg and Rich Fogel were story editing it um and i just thought it was a terrific idea but we felt collectively uh in development that the, it was an, a show that didn't get the proper level of respect and we thought there were the main reason for that was that there was brand confusion with another show that was on the air at the time called care bears and the confusion was totally understandable because both shows um, involved cute little multicolored bears. And <laughs> yes, Gummy Bears was this great comedy adventure show with these great characters and great villains and Duke Eggthorn and Tony and, um, and all this really interesting backstory and Care Bears were these sort of saccharine sweet bears who like to hug each other. Um, and <laughs> it was not a show that, that any of us, we were not big Care Bear fans over at Disney TV Animation, but we were huge Gummy Bear fans. And yet ours was the show named after a candy. So if someone said, hey, isn't that that sickly sweet show? Uh, we'd be like, no, no. And, but, but we were named after a candy. So it was hard to 
for gummy bears to get the kind of traction that we thought it deserved. So um, we set out very consciously to do a show in the mode of Disney's Adventures of the Gummy Bears. That is a comedy adventure show um, that featured cute little multicolored uh, lead characters. Um, but instead of bears, um, we would go with gargoyles. I had been fascinated with gargoyles uh, at least since a high school trip to Europe. The idea of gargoyles alone just sort of interested me, this idea that people put scary statues on their castles or on their churches to scare away evil spirits. And just the inherent contradiction of that idea um, I thought was fascinating. So I began... uh, particularly once I, uh, I went to college here in the United States, but I did a semester in uh, Oxford, and I began taking photos with gargoyles, often with me posing like whatever gargoyle I was standing next to, um, or collecting postcards with gargoyles. And Oxford is a great town for gargoyles, so I had this whole sort of collage of gargoyle pictures and postcards up on my the wall of my... Uh, room there and this wasn't like oh someday i'll make a tv show about this it was just something that interested me but when we decided to create a show like gummy bears gargoyle seemed like a natural way to go and this was the 90s and the word edgy was really big in the 90s i remember everything had to be edgy (laughs) um so the two things that we did for gummy bears as a new show to get it more respect, so to speak, or to make it edgier. And one obviously more edgy thing is instead of being cute little multicolored cuddly bears, we did cute little multicolored cuddly gargoyles, little monsters that seemed edgier. Um, In an era of gremlins and uh, other movies like it, that seemed like a good plan. And then the second thing we did to make it edgier was instead of, we would still have this great medieval backstory just as gummy bears had, but instead of setting our show in medieval times, we would put our gargoyles to sleep for a thousand years and have them wake up in the present so that we'd have these medieval little creatures running around in present day New York. And that would be uh, edgier, we thought. And so we (laughs) set about... Uh, our our team uh, of development uh, people that I led um, set about creating a show, a comedy adventure show in the mode of gummy bears. Um, and we went through a whole bunch of iterations of it. But the basic idea was to sell um, a show like gummy bears uh, with cute little gargoyles running around doing crazy, funny things, but with a real sort of backstory and storyline to it, just as gummy bears had. So, that so you was took, our original plan. So you took, you know, the gummy bears, and the, since you added edgy to it, you, like, added that to, like, turn that up to 11, that edg- edginess. <laughs> well, that wasn't the plan. That, it wound up wound up being the result, but that wasn't the original plan. The original plan was a comedy adventure show. Um, 
very much in the gummy bear mode. And then that changed for various reasons as we continue to develop the series. So um, there were versions of Hudson and Brooklyn and Broadway and, um, and Lexington uh, versions of the characters that became Demona and Thanatos and Owen. There was all this stuff in the show, versions of the character that became Elisa. Um, I think that the most, you know, and we went through all these iterations, but I think the one that we landed on that I remember the most clearly, um, uh, we had had a leap character, a female gargoyle named Dakota, but she was so straight that she was kind of boring. So we flipped her and she became an evil gargoyle working with a bad guy named Demona. Um, and the bad guy went through all these iterations. He was called Xavier. Originally, he was descended from the wizard that cursed um, the gargoyles, but he was very much in the mode of Duke Igthorn or Captain Hook sort of a comedic villain, and he had a sidekick named Mr. Owen, and Mr. Owen had started out as a human, but in the first episode, he got hit by a magic spell and was turned into an anthropomorphic aardvark and would spend the rest of the series <laughs> begging people to turn him back into a human being. And then we had the gargoyles, and they included uh, Amp, who was a little uh, high-energy character uh, who looked uh, a bit like an early version of Lexington, but whose personality was more like an early version of Brooklyn. And then there was Coco, who was a female character, very much uh, the Broadway of the bunch. Um, and then there was uh, Lassie, who was a male gargoyle who who admired the dog Lassie that he saw on television. And he was sort of an, sort of an idiot savant, really fascinated with technology, but he was as fascinated with computers as he might be fascinated as watching a, a, a traffic light continually changing from red to green to yellow to red to green to yellow to red. He could easily sit and watch that for hours and it, or, you know, reprogram a computer. So he was in personality sort of like a proto version of Lexington, but he looked like a proto version of uh, Brooklyn. So the personalities and, and looks of those two characters, Amp and Lassie, got switched when they became Brooklyn and Lexington. And then the fourth gargoyle, was Ralph, who was a bit older and uh, really just liked to stay at home and watch TV. And he was sort of the proto-Hudson. And we thought this show was hilarious, um, and we were all really excited about it. And so uh, in those days, uh, every six months, we would have a meeting with the big bosses, and that was Michael Eisner, who ran the entire Walt Disney Company, and Jeffrey Katzenberg, who, who was head of the Walt Disney Studio. And we would pitch a slate of shows, of shows that we had developed, to Eisner and Katzenberg, but mainly Eisner, um, every six months. And we had this thing called the Disney Afternoon back then, 
And the Disney Afternoon needed a new show, at least one new show every year. And what that meant was is that um, Eisner was kind of the last of the Hollywood moguls from our point of view in that he chose which television series we would make. And at the time, it kind of bugged us, to be perfectly honest, because it was like we had all these great ideas and he would pick one. Um, and sort of throw away all the other ideas that we thought were great. Um, and we found that frustrating, but we didn't really appreciate what that really meant, which is that if Michael Eisner picked an idea, everybody else in the company got on board or got out of the way. And that was an incredibly valuable thing that changed when Michael stopped making those picks. Um, so we brought that show to Eisner, the comedy adventure version of Gargoyles that I just described. And he passed. He didn't like it. Which was a huge bummer. <laughs> and uh, so from there, uh, normally that would just mean it was dead. But my, uh, my boss, Gary Kreisel, still thought there was something in the idea. And so he s suggested that we show uh, the comedy pitch to a number of people and um, get feedback, see if, what they thought. One of the people that I showed it to was a guy named Tad Stones, who had created Darkwing Duck and Chippendale's Rescue Rangers. And Tad had seen uh, an early unfinished version of Beauty and the Beast recently. Um, and so Tad suggested, you know, you've got all these little gargoyles. What if you ditched them and just had one big gargoyle? And we have the human character. She had, at different times, she was a cop. She was a firefighter. She was a museum curator. She was a mom with little kids. Um, we went through all these iterations on the character that eventually became Elisa Maza. But he said, take the human woman and pair her with this gargoyle. And there was no equivalent to Goliath in the comedy development. Um, and, but when Tad said this, it really clicked for me. My background was working at DC Comics. I was a superhero guy and I'd started at Disney and been working in funny animals for two or three years, but this was sort of moving it back towards my, uh, you know, what sort of rocks my world, you know? And I think Greg, this is about the period of time when I showed the old comedy development to you, right? Was it some, does that sound yeah. familiar? Yeah, I rem remember all those characters, and I we even did some uh, development stuff where a character was staring at a traffic light. <clears throat> but what right. was funny about this was Greg and I had met at a Disney uh, company party. I had just come on to the company at Disney, and we, I don't know what, how we ended up hanging out together, him and his wife and me, and... And I, but you know, you don't introduce what you do at these things. 
And so we just hung out and we'd both worked for DC. So we talked about that and, and, uh, I got a phone call. I was working, I think on either the end of Darkwing Duck or the beginning of Aladdin. And I got a phone call from somebody in development wanting me to come up. Well, first they asked me, are you the guy that worked at DC and drew Hawkendove for DC? And I said, yeah. And he said, can you come up and have a meeting? And we want to talk to you about some freelance. So I went up there and here was Greg. You know, and we both went, Hey, I kind of know you. <laughs> and, uh, I remember Bob Klein was there and Greg, and we talked about it and yeah, that was my initial foray into gargoyle dumb. And, uh, then I just freelanced, you know, we talked about it a little bit and I freelanced character designs for the show, which wasn't even a show yet. I do have to ask, and maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but you designed Goliath. You also designed Demona. What was that process like for both of those characters? Because both of those characters have since become iconic. You look at their silhouettes, you know exactly who you're seeing. Well, I don't remember seeing anything on Goliath um, or Demona when I started working on them. But the way we, I did it at least was I just... It hadn't been that long since I um, stopped working on Hawk and Dove, and I think there's a lot of Hawk in um, Goliath. And basically what I did is I'd go home at night, and I'd... Well, I quickly found out that by referencing actual gargoyles, you you got nowhere because they're all ugly and goofy-looking and and not appealing. So I thought, well, that's not going to work. Anyway... Um, so I'd go home at night and I'd do various gargoyles and what Greg and, and, uh, Bob Klein, I think primarily did was they'd pick, well, we like the body on this one. We like the attitude on this one. We like the hands on this one. We like the horns on this one. And, um, they did give me the one piece of, um, reference they gave me was Chernabog from Fantasia. And of course he couldn't, he didn't, we didn't want him to look evil, but, um, and I think that's what the same thing happened with Demona. I remember, I think the first drawing of Demona I did, she had a gigantic gun and, um, some kind of tattoos on her face, if I remember right. But she basically had the same hairdo and, uh, um, you know, no, she didn't actually together. She didn't Demona's have what? hairdo. Demona's hairdo, she had a long, uh, you know, she had that long ponytail that we eventually gave to Angela in season two. And I love that. Oh, yeah, that's right. Frank Park, when Frank Park came in later, he ditched the ponytail for the more wild red hair that uh, we wound up with with Demona. The more of the. Yeah, I think she had that hair and then the ponytail behind it. And it was it was just too much. But, yeah, uh, yeah, I seem to recall Frank saying at one of the conventions he wanted her to have angrier hair. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we learned various so, uh, lessons as we went. I mean, one thing we learned about Goliath's horns is that if you aim the horns forward, he looked more devilish and evil. But if the horns swooped back in the same way as his hair did then it just looked tough and cool. Yeah. 
So we, yeah, we and were that, careful you know, always to keep the horns aiming backwards. Right. And I think that was funny. I, I remember being in a meeting with you and some other people who, you know, what generally would happen in development would, would be that, you know, you guys, we'd all be going along fine and everything would be great. And then someone else would come in and start asking questions and, and you know, try to derail the train, I guess. But um, you brought that up in a meeting. And he said, if you notice, all the horns go back on all the characters, which is kind of true. And um, and that indicates that they're good. If the horns are going forward in a more dramatic and, and threatening pose, that means they're bad. And I remember we were walking out of the meeting and I said, that was great. But I don't remember us ever talking about it. He said, I just made it up. And, you know, that was, <laughs> that was great, you know, that you, you know, just on his feet, he'd be able to do that. And, um, you know, there are a lot of cool things like coming up with the, the idea that their wings fold down over their shoulders. And that was actually um, uh, Gary Chrysler's idea. The, the wings caping like that was Gary Chrysler's idea. And it made me nervous because I thought we were uh, already people were starting to talk about this as Disney's uh, attempt to do Batman, Batman the animated series. And I thought oh, if we cape the wings, it makes Goliath silhouette look like even more like Batman. And so I, right. I, I was initially really reluctant, but it wound up being one of the smartest things we did because for the storyboard artists and animators, if you had all those wings out all the time, there wasn't room to get more than two characters on screen at any one time. But if you caked yeah, the wings... Yeah, staging would be a nightmare. It, yeah. So it was a huge, smart thing, although I do not think that's why Gary suggested it. I think he wanted it to look more like Batman. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, he used to come into the meetings and say, yeah, I don't know if this series is going to go because Batman's down on the ratings. And we'd just be sitting there going, what? So, um, but yeah, there was a there was a big Batman connection. I, you know, I suggested that if their eyes go white when they're angry, which I thought was just cool. And, right. you know, I stole it from some of the stuff that I'd done in the past. I always thought that Goliath was kind of a dragon man. And when so when I designed him, I never thought that the mass of that brown thing that looks kind of like hair, I never pictured it being hair. I pictured it being like a hide kind of a crest thing. Because remember, initially he also had them on his arms. He had these, right. like, bat things hard. And I, I always thought they were, like, almost like horn protrusions coming out of his arms. And I, and I remember when they made the, you know, I don't know, maybe you do, Greg. Did Gar Goliath ever walk around Disneyland? They did make a walk around cost. character for him. Um, I know they used it at Disney World. I don't know that they ever used it at Disneyland. I'm pretty sure they did not, but I don't know that for a fact. But I do remember seeing him at Disney World um, and seeing the costume 
and the guy in the costume came to a an event in New York in 1996. Uh, Keith David was there, and um, and I, uh, Gary Mariano was there, uh, and uh, and so was the walk around Goliath. Um, which <laughs> somewhere in, you know, in some box, some, you know, <laughs> costumes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're yeah because I remember we're seeing it. He had a big G ourselves. on his belt. No, that's, oh, I don't know uh, if we, no, I'm pretty, and no, I, I remember seeing the costume. Um, yeah, yeah. I've seen Frank Parr posted a photo of himself with it at one point on Facebook. <laughs> I'll have to I, dig I that. know I've got a uh, photo of it somewhere. I know but that, the reason I bring uh, it up is because... Go ahead. No, go go for it. Well, the reason I bring it up is because he also... That that Macron suit had the things on his arm still. That, um, you know, and he had claws. I mean, he actually had finger... You know, little pointed claws on the end of his fingers and, and all that stuff when I worked on him, but uh, um, luckily that was all removed by Frank and those guys when they smoothed everybody out. But I remember also when I was working on Goliath, the littler gargoyles, the younger ones, were still pretty cartoony. Yeah. They were They were little. You know, they were still gummy yeah. size. Um, and they, you know, there was a Stuff where they were riding motorcycles and doing all kinds of kooky stuff. Right, some of which they still did, but uh, it definitely was still a hybrid kind of show. So if we get back to the sort of story of selling the show, after Tad gave his advice, um, Greg and I created the character of Goliath. Um, and, uh, we then took all the rest of the comedy development and put it through the prism of Goliath and came out the other end with fundamentally the show that you guys all saw on television. Um, and a lot of different artists contributed to it. I would say that, um, Greg basically did the designs that, and, and not the final designs for these characters, because that was done in Japan. But, but in essence, for all intents and purposes, Greg uh, created Goliath, Demona, and Elisa. Um, Bob Klein created Xanatos. Um, Dave Schwartz created uh, Brooklyn, Lexington, and Broadway. And Paul Felix created Hudson and Bronx. Um, oh, and there we, was a very cool Bronx initially. <laughs> Remember that comedy character? Yeah. Right. With, had with the little, little wings tiny wings on his ears. head and go... <laughs> and he was covered with those wing, ear wings. For those of you uh, listeners who still know what physical media is, the DVD of season one is still available and you can see it in the extras. Right. Oh, yeah, it is in the extras, yeah. So we created this huge pitch for this show. 
with all these ideas. I mean, this really, we really ran with this idea of a more sort of superhero-y Goliath. Um, you know, we weren't going to label it as superheroes, no capes, no tights, but we were in essence now in that genre. There'd still be humor in the show, lots of it, uh, but there'd be romance and there'd be action and there'd, you know, the basic thing of the superhero media genre is that it's a, it's a mutt genre. It includes detective fiction. It includes science fiction. It includes fantasy. It can include horror. It, it basically takes every other genre and lumps it together. Um, and that was the superhero genre. And so that's what we were doing. Um, so there'd be magic in the show, but there'd be science fiction and robots. So we had, Xanatos and he had the Scarab Corporation with these giant robot monsters. We had um, a character called Cat Scan who eventually became talent uh, in the show. We had the pack. Um, we had all these ideas and we put all of them in the pitch. It was a massive pitch the second time out. So the first pitch was the comedy development. And six months later, we went back to Eisner with this massive pitch as an action drama still with humor, but now an action drama as opposed to comedy adventure. And it had, it was just jam packed with ideas and all this great stuff. And we pitched it to him and he passed. He didn't like it. Um, and I want to say that, the show that we pitched him is fundamentally the show that did end up going on the air, but he passed on it. So the next day we had what we called a post-mortem meeting. We literally called it that with uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg. And again, Katzenberg was Eisner's number two at the time. This was back in the days way before DreamWorks, obviously. This was in the days before Frank Wells died in a helicopter crash. And when Jeffrey and Michael got along much better than they would end up getting along later down the road. Um, and we were in the meeting mostly to discuss the shows we had sold. Um, and I don't remember just timing wise, which that was. I'm pretty sure it was either goof troop or bonkers. Um, but at the end of the meeting, uh, I'm there uh, as head of development, uh, my immediate boss was Bruce Cranston, and then Bruce and my boss, Gary Kreisel, were there uh, with Jeffrey. And as we're standing to go, Jeffrey turns to me and says, and you're going to work on Gargoyle some more, right? And I, you know, looked at Bruce and Gary and then looked at Jeffrey and said, well, no. Um, we pitched it as a comedy and Michael killed it. We pitched it as a drama and Michael killed it, I, you know, and Jeffrey's like, Oh no, he didn't kill it. He just uh, thought it needed more work. So again, I'm like looking at Bruce and Gary, like, okay, I've been doing this for a few years now. When I know when a show gets killed, uh, Michael did not say at the meeting the day before, I like this. It's not quite there. Work on it a little more. He said, no, I don't like it. And so what became clear to me in that moment was that Michael hadn't liked it, but Jeffrey had. Um, and what I later found out is that Gary had been talking to Jeffrey about the fact that the Disney afternoon had a built-in problem in those days, which was that um, 
it was a bit too homogenous. Like every one of our shows was very different from the other shows. DuckTales was different from Gummy Bears, which was different from Tailspin, uh, which was different from Chippendale's Rescue Rangers. And yet, if you looked at it on the surface, it was a bunch of shows with funny animals. And as different as all those shows were, a surface view would make you think that's all there was. And so Gary had been talking to Jeffrey about the need to diversify the afternoon and that gargoyles might be a good way to do that. So we went back to the drawing board a third time and we all sat down and Greg, I can't remember specifically if you were there because in essence you still had a day job on Darkwing or Aladdin or whatever, right? Um, yeah, yeah I, I don't know if I was there for that one. So we sat down and looked at the show and said, okay, how are we going to change this show this time? Because we've done comedy, we've done drama, what's left? And we took a really close look at the show and we came to the conclusion that there was absolutely nothing wrong with the show. This was a great show. We weren't going to change the show at all. The problem was not the show. The problem was the pitch. We had been so enthusiastic about what we had created. We had thrown everything in the kitchen sink into the pitch. So instead of, so what we did was we kept pulling things out of the pitch. So the pack, which again ended up being in the show, was pulled out of the pitch. Um, the, the character Cat Scan, the idea of the mutates, which ended up getting into the show, was pulled out of the pitch. And we really focused the pitch. By this time, Beauty and the Beast had come out and was, you know, something of a success for the Walt Disney Company. <laughs> uh, and uh, so we really focused that pitch on the relationship between Goliath and Lisa. And, yeah, we mentioned the three teenage gargoyles. We mentioned Xana and Hutos and Demona. We mentioned Hudson and Bronx. But we focused that pitch um, on Goliath and Elisa. So we rearranged a few cards, but mostly we just cut cards. And this version of the pitch you can see specifically on the season one uh, DVD. Um, it's like the picture of Dorian Gray in reverse. I, I guess <laughs> younger. <laughs> Every time I look at, because you can see me now at age you know, 57, and then you can look at me, introduce the pitch at age like 40-something, and then I'm pitching the show at age 30, and um, it's frightening. Uh, but <laughs> in any event, uh, we went back six months later and pitched the show again to Michael, this shorter pitch, and he, this time he bought it. And Jeffrey turned to me and said, you added a lot to that, didn't you? <laughs> and I, of course, it added nothing. I just cut things. But I said, yes, I did, because my mom didn't. <laughs> um, and uh, we went from there. And I will say that from that point on, Michael was, became a great champion for the show. Once he bought it and signed off on it, he was a huge champion. So, for example, we were in some meeting where that walk around character costume was there. And um, uh, one of the other executives said, we think it needs a big G. 
We want it on his chest, but we get that doesn't work. So let's put a big G on his belt for, and and how was it? Wow. I'm like, what is that G? Or gargoyles, Goliath, and and the guy goes, it doesn't matter, but that G will you know become the emblem of the show. And Eisner turned to me and said, "Do you like that?" And I said, uh, "Honestly, no. I don't think that's a good idea. I think it makes it's going to make it look cheesy." Um, and, you know, it'll make it feel less legitimate. Neiser said, lose the G. And so Jeffrey was a huge supporter of the show. Michael was a huge supporter of the show. Gary and Bruce were both huge supporters of the show, as was Rich Frank, who was another executive there. Um, and we had tremendous support as we then set out to make the show, um, which was a whole different game than creating and selling it. Um, those are two different skill sets. There's some overlap, but those are really two different things you have to learn to do in this business, selling and, and, uh, and making. Um, but that's the story of uh, how we sold it. And then, you know, making it is probably a story for another day. Um, for Greg Guler, I seem to recall you once saying that you did encounter some people who didn't think the show was right for the company back when it was still being produced. Yeah, well, I remember uh, going to the coffee machine and uh, an old-time Disney guy, I mean, really old, I'm not going to tell you who he is, but came up to me and said, what is this show you're doing? And I said, well, it's it's a kind of a superhero show. Because they somehow had seen uh, development art somewhere on the walls, and you know the buzz was going around that we were doing this, and and he just didn't. He said, "This is not what Disney does," and I said, "This is exactly what Disney, you know, Disney did Treasure Island, Disney did, um, you know, nature movies and all kinds of stuff." And I think it's exactly, you know, he would have branched out to uh, other types of stuff all over the place as much as he could. And at that time, you know, there was no doubt that Batman was a big hit and there was more superhero stuff coming out all the time. And, um, I had quite, you know, there, I know people at Disney wouldn't let their kids watch it because they thought it was demonic. And wow. I said, all you got to do is listen to three lines of dialogue that Goliath says, and you know, he's not a demonic character, but it was those bat wings. It was those turnabog bat wings. There was a lot of prejudging, but that was common at Disney in those days, both inside and outside the company. Everyone thought they knew what Walt would want. I remember getting a letter about DuckTales, which had uh, the character Magica Dispel in it. And, uh, and because of Magica, we got a letter from a mom who, who was just appalled that we had, were using uh, magic and thus, by definition, from her point of view, Satanism in the show, DuckTales, um, because that's the character of Magica Dispel in DuckTales. It's, by the way, not a character that we created, but was created by Carl Barks, you know, decades earlier. Uh, and there was like, Walt Disney would be rolling over in his grave if he knew you were doing this. And I'm like, have you seen Snow White? 
Um, <laughs> like, like there's so much magic in throughout the years. Didn't Maleficent right. invoke so, the powers of hell on screen? Yes, she did. Right. Or yeah. the fact that she did Fantasia with Chernabog in it. And Chernabog is clearly the devil in that movie. Um, and uh, so the notion that Disney could only be one thing was exactly what Gary and I and Jeffrey and, and many others were fighting against. Um was that Disney could be more than just one thing. And and that's why there was Touchstone Pictures, and that's why there were all these different aspects to Disney. That's why if you go to Disneyland, yes, there's Flying Dumbo Ride, but there's also Pirates of the Caribbean and Haunted Mansion. You know, uh, Disney was always, even in Walt's day, more than one thing. And yet, over time, people began to think that Disney had to be um, perfectly safe for every single kid, no matter how fragile at any given moment. Um, and that wasn't a way to build an entertainment company. And so we very consciously at some point started to move into different areas, whether it was gargoyles action drama or it was Schnook of the Meat in a sort of uh, cartoony uh, show made more in the style of old Warner Brothers cartoons, uh, or uh, and even there, the most aggressive of them. You know, um, it the idea was to begin to really diversify the Disney afternoon specifically, but Disney, what Disney meant to people in general. Um, and, you know, a couple of years in, I was at a meeting, one of these meetings with Eisner. Again, we would have these meetings, which for some reason they called seminars. I never quite understood why it was called a seminar. Um, but we would have these seminars every six months. And I was in one with Eisner where Eisner was saying that he wanted to buy Marvel Comics. And he was talked out of it in the meeting. I mean, I witnessed this, um, he was told by some of his uh, strategic executives that um, we get why you want it, but it's not going to be what you want. That Marvel Comics that existed then, which would have been a bargain because it was either in bankruptcy Bankrupt. or on the verge, um, had you know sold the rights to all its characters to make movies that Spider-Man had been sold multiple times, that Fantastic Four had been sold twice. Be like you know you you'd get up there and you'd want to make a Spider-Man movie, Michael, and you wouldn't be able to because Sony owns rights to it, and they're fighting with these two other companies who both think they have the rights to it. So it would just be a nightmare. And Michael was very frustrated by this. I mean, he in essence took the advice and obviously didn't buy Marvel uh, at that time for a steal, um, but. He was frustrated because he's like, look, Warner Brothers has all the DC Comics characters. We need something like that. We are missing that in our repertoire. And he literally turned to me and said, could Gargoyles be the start of a Disney action universe? And I said, yeah, it definitely could. If you thought of Gargoyles as being, in essence, what the Fantastic Four was, 
to the Marvel universe in the early sixties. Um, and how they built the rest of the universe out from there, we could do that. And in season two, we set out to prove that. Uh, then, you know, time passes, Eisner leaves, or Rich Frank leaves, Jeffrey Katzenberg leaves, Gary leaves, Bruce leaves, and suddenly all these people who were had my back on Gargoyles were gone, and that uh, whole plan to use Gargoyles to create this Disney action universe all goes away rapidly. Um, but there was a moment there um, when we were specifically tasked to do that for Michael. Um, and then, you know, the irony, of course, is that years later, uh, after Eisner's gone, Disney does buy Marvel. Of course, at that point, Marvel was a huge success, and it cost them a fortune to buy that. I had that same conversation with Gary Kreisel waiting for a meeting to start, because I think just a couple of nights before that, we'd watched that Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie. And we were sitting there waiting for the meeting to start, and I said, you know, you guys should buy, and I didn't know anything about the Eisner thing. And I said, Disney should buy Marvel. And he, his tact was, of course, he was in that meeting, so he probably knew that wasn't going to happen. But he said, you know, the readership of comics is so small, our audience would never, there would be no audience for it. And besides that, none of, nobody would understand what's going on because the com- comic universe is so convoluted. And Because he, he must have, I saw him at a comic con a few times, so he must have known something about comics. And so, I you know, that was the same thing. The, Gary and I once took a meeting with Stan Lee. Um, Stan and uh, a guy who came with Stan, his name I, I can't summon up at this moment, but came and the four of us had lunch. Me and Gary and Stan and Stan's guy uh, had lunch. And it was a brilliant effing lunch because Stan was hilarious. The guy cracked a joke every 3.2 seconds like clockwork. Um, and they weren't all brilliant, but there were so many of them <laughs> that, that if one didn't land, the next one was coming 3.2 seconds later, and it was terrific. And so we were just laughing, and he was there to pitch us doing a Thor movie, uh, animated, or not movie, but TV series, animated Thor TV series. And I, of course, being a comic book geek, thought that was a brilliant idea. And when the, and we had been laughing all through the meeting, all four of us, and it was great, and everything was great, and we walked away, and I'm like, this is terrific. We're going to do Thor. And Gary's like, we're not doing Thor. I'm like, what? He's like, no, no one would understand. He's a god. He's not a god. What does that mean? I don't get it. You know, we're not doing that. The audience wouldn't understand. And I'm like, no, they wouldn't. And yeah. he's like, no. And, and of course, he was wrong. <laughs> so wrong. Don't get me wrong. I wonder if he ever he thinks about get, that. I don't know, but you know, he just was not a geek, you know, and yeah. he didn't understand that the geeks inherit the earth. I mean, he, he didn't get that. Um, and so he, you know, would humor me cause he knew I was, and he liked me anyway, but <laughs> he also did, you know, 
wouldn't let me pull the trigger on any of my geekier ideas. You know, the geekiest I got for him was Garden. Um, and that, like well, I said, there was going to be a there was going to be a spinoff. I remember. Um, and I'm blanking on the premise, but the, it was about that kid that's on that sh- uh, sailing boat, and he gets New Olympian. Yeah, that was goes through a dimension. Uh, we did a backdoor pilot for that, but again, we're sort of getting way ahead of ourselves. But yeah, that was the idea: was that we would. That was part of that idea of Michael's Eisner's, which was let's use gargoyles to develop these spinoffs and and then make movies out of them and etc. So you know, gargoyles was developed by Touchstone for a while as a movie, um, on and off for years. Uh, before Disney bought uh, Marvel and Lucasfilm, um, which then, you know, in a sort of further irony, put the nail in the coffin of doing a live-action Gargoyles movie, because why would you risk making an incredibly expensive film based on a 90s TV show with a cult following that may or may not resonate when you could just make the next Marvel movie or the next Star Wars movie? Um, and which, you know, at least they perceived as more or less slam dunks with good reason. And I understand that. I'm not saying I'm thrilled about it, but I understand it. Um, it's a tough sell to make a big, expensive Gargoyles movie when you've got these properties that are, um, sure things, or at least a hell of a lot closer to sure things. Um, well, the reason I bring it up is because I remember talking to you, you know, there was a dimensional rift involved and in in that spinoff. And, and I said, yeah, dimensional rift. And he goes, what's a dimensional rift? And I said, well, you know, you, you go into another universe, much like our own and, you know, Star Trek. And uh, he said, nobody's going to understand another dimension. So, right. you know, the same it's basic. It's, it's, and that was that was Gary. Um, he was great about a lot of stuff, but was not. He didn't have a geeky bone in his body. He just did. Um, and uh, you know, and that's okay. That was my job to be the geek in the room. Uh, and uh, all things considered, good we made a pretty team. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was a damn good geek. But um, it, 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 you know, was a. It did mean that some opportunities passed us by, um, and some of them were for business reasons, and some were for creative reasons, etc. Um, but yeah, I mean that's like I said, that's kind of the story of selling the show, and then you know uh, we can talk again about making the show. That's a whole different. Oh yeah. Oh. Um, set of oh. Oh, we'll definitely, definitely do that, probably in our very next installment. But before we um, wrap things up, I kind of wonder if there is maybe renewed interest in the series going on right now, not just with us hardcore fans who have stuck with it for, some might say, way, 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 way too long, but <laughs> but the uh, but I'm seeing they're showing up in these Disney cell phone games now, now as playable characters. The uh, upcoming NECA Goliath figure the pre-order sold out within a few days. They had to go to a second run. Apparently they were taken, 
by a huge surprise by the amount of demand for this. And they're doing a full line. They're going to announce a second figure sometime soon, and uh, we'll see. We'll we'll see who that is. But I, but I wonder if there's maybe something beginning to happen. Maybe not at Disney, but just something pop culture wise. Is nostalgia finally catching up with it? Uh, you know, I, I think uh, as I, I mean, I think the short answer is yes and no. Um, you know, the show is, and this is great. The show is on uh, Disney Plus, and if a lot of fans watch it, the more fans that watch it, the more likely it is that something will happen with it because. Um, in essence, you know, if people buy, pay for Disney Plus, right, and then the shows they watch on it, uh, in essence, is putting money in the company's wallet, and and they know exactly how many people watch stuff. I mean, in some ways, the thing that's great about streaming versus old-style Nielsen ratings back in the day is that Nielsen was always just an approximation. They would try to get houses and apartments and whatever that represented what they thought was the population that watched television. But it was always just guesswork. I mean, it was educated guesswork. It was statistical, but it still was just a guess. Well, when it comes to streaming, there's no guesswork. They know exactly they have actual hard numbers of who, who's purchased, you know, the subscription to Disney plus, they know exactly what they're watching Often it's even broken down by members of the family, um, and they know. So if a ton of people start watching and re-watching Gargoyles, that would be a big help. Obviously, from the standpoint of the nostalgia wave, the way nostalgia works is um, you get these waves. So, you know, about a decade ago, Transformer movies were really huge, right? because the 80s wave was rolling through. And the 90s wave was just starting to roll through, as I mentioned earlier, when Disney bought Marvel and Lucasfilm. So we got kind of wave interruptus, you know, uh, on the Gargoyles front. I had been talking to Disney about doing something more with Gargoyles, and then these purchases happened, and suddenly it became incredibly difficult. Um, I have still had some conversations and I think there are some things that are possible, but there's nothing to report. Um, uh, and that's not me being cagey or coy. I, there's just literally nothing to report, but you know, I think you're right. The fact that, um, the, this Goliath figure and hopefully other figures are coming, uh, is a good sign. Um, and that maybe another nineties wave is starting and maybe this time, the wave will really sort of bring gargoyles along with it. It certainly seems like that kind of time. The fact that there was this sort of uh, wave that included DuckTales for a DuckTales reboot um, that then went on to sort of reference all the other shows from the Disney afternoon, ultimately in the last episode, even referencing gargoyles in a way that probably seems pretty obscure to anyone who's never seen the show, but uh, to anyone who has is pretty hilarious um, with Keith David <laughs> playing the headless horseman as a gargoyle. I don't know. It's bizarre, but uh, you kind of have to see it. <laughs> but, it was very fever know, dream. It, 
Yeah, I'm still not entirely yeah, sure I understand it, and I watched that entire it series. Just shows, it just shows that there's there's a fondness for the show. Um, you know, my preference has always been, and I think this is easier now than, frankly, it was 10 years ago, um, is not to reboot it, but just to make more. Yes. And I think we could do that because we, in a, with a streaming service, you've got the 65 episodes of the first two seasons you could pick up from there and it's not like the audience doesn't have access to the first two seasons they can start with those seasons and then watch the 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 next season that's quote-unquote new material but you know i'm open to all sorts of possibilities and also at the same time there's no guarantee that if gargoyles went you know disney owns it lock, stock, and gargoyle, uh, there's no guarantee that they'll come to me to do it. I hope they will. I'd like to think they would. But, uh, you know, I know there have been times when they've intentionally not included me in gargoyle discussions. I know there have been times when uh, uh, they forgot I existed vis-a-vis gargoyles. Um, and... So, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I'm even privy to all the discussions about gargoyles, but I have been privy to some, and, and I think there's a possibility here, but we're a long way from, oh, yeah, it's happening. Um, I mean, we're a long way from that. Um, but I uh, uh, I have never given up on gargoyles, uh, in part because uh, fans, uh, and I met both Greg Bishansky and Jennifer through the fandom, and consider you guys both close friends. Uh, but it's because the fans have kept my interest high and, and, uh, but you know, we've never quite given up on doing more with gargoyles, whether it was in comic book form or animation form or live action or whatever. Uh, I, I'm still hoping that someday we get to get back to it. Definitely. Yeah. The animated series, nobody gets any older. <laughs> That's right. As far as I'm concerned, it could still be set in that. True. Yeah, I mean, is, is anyone going to be upset if Elisa just doesn't start texting people out of the blue? I don't think so. Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I think um, we've. You gave us. Some, you, you two both gave us a really good first hour. I'm really happy about about that. I mean, we're definitely going to have to come back and discuss the making of the series, maybe even invite invite, invite one or two other people along to discuss their perspective on that. Sounds great. Sure. All right. So I just, so so to Greg Wiseman and Greg Guler, Jennifer once again in the sea of Greg's. I want to thank you both <laughs> for coming on and to our listeners. I hope you enjoyed our premiere episode. There's going to be way more to come, way 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 more to come. We haven't we're, we're just getting started. We barely scratched the surface. So tune in next time and welcome to Voices from the Eerie.
someone send a gargoyle to father and sign it the gummy bears? Gee, I don't remember sending the king a present. 